National Archives podcast series, A Brilliant Little Operation, the full story of how the Cockleshell heroes mounted the greatest raid of World War II, presented by Lord Ashdown. This podcast was recorded live on the 23rd of October 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. So let us begin, if we may, um, where I began um, a long time ago, and here's from the prologue of my book. In the spring of 1965, just after I joined the Royal Marines Special Boat Section, the SBS, I took part in the devices to Westminster canoe race, one of the most gruelling 24 hours I've ever experienced. After the race, I caught the train back to the SBS base in Poole. I dumped my rucksack on the luggage rack and slumped into the window seat of my compartment and fell immediately into an exhausted sleep. The train was not crowded. And there was, I vaguely recall, before sleep dragged me down, only one other person in the carriage. At a station not far out of London, Woking perhaps, the train suddenly juddered to a stop, and I awoke with a start to find my travelling companion studying me carefully. He was an imposing man with broad shoulders, a bald head, piercing, craggy eyes, an athletic-looking figure for his age, which I judged to be around 50, and a tidily trimmed, greying moustache. I cannot now remember how our conversation started or who started it, but I can remember that it was not long before I felt myself being rather firmly interrogated. Judging from your camouflage smock, you're a Royal Marine, I suppose. I am. What rank are you? I'm a lieutenant. So you're coming down from London? Yeah, I've just done the devises to Westminster canoe race. Hmm. 125 miles, that's quite tough, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's completely exhausting, I can tell you. Well, I imagine it is. So, you're off to pool, I suppose? Yes. SBS? Look, I'm not at liberty to tell you the details of my job, I said, uh, in a pompous and irritable tone, which I immediately regretted. Not surprisingly, our conversation ended there, and we relapsed into what was, for me at least, an uncomfortable silence until he left the train, at Winchester, perhaps while I continued on to pool. There I hitched my rucksack on my back and headed for the taxi rank where a fellow SBS colleague who had been on the same train bounded up to me. What was he like? What was he like, he said. Who, I asked. Blondie Hasler, he replied. You were sharing a compartment with him. Even today it gives me embarrassment and pain to remember that the travelling companion to whom I had been so gratuitously rude had been one of the most extraordinary figures of the Second World War. He was the leader and one of only two survivors in his own, uh, only two survivors of the Cockershell Heroes Raid, a man who had not only become a legend in his own lifetime, but whose exploits had laid the foundations for the modern SBS, creating both its ethos and its culture. Operation Frankton, a brilliant little operation in the words of Lord Mountbatten, has, I think, an unrivaled claim to be the greatest small raid of the Second World War. Up to 1942, almost all British commando raids had been brief, limited in scope, and designed to do more to boost morale at home than do serious damage to the enemy. They were christened butcher and bolt affairs. As far as we know, Blondie Hasler killed no one. But their success did serious damage to the sense of invincibility of Britain's enemies at a moment when they seemed to be triumphant everywhere. And it also gave renewed hope and offensive spirit to our allies amongst the French people. Few other raids in the Second World War could match the audacity of an assault on the massive German naval port of Bordeaux, defended by 10,000 German troops 
with just ten men in five fragile canoes. And none required such a deep and prolonged penetration using only their own resources of enemy territory. Finally, the epic post-raid escape and evasion of Hasler and his canoe companion Bill Sparks across enemy-occupied France, over the Pyrenees, through Spain, and back to Britain, remains, I believe, a classic that has never been surpassed. After the war, a, one German officer present in Bordeaux when the raid took place described Frankton as the outstanding commando raid of the war. In the early 1930s, a good, if monochromatic, book was written about the exploit of Blondie and his men. Later still, in 1955, a badly flawed film was also made on the subject. They bore the same name, The Cockershell Heroes, a title which, by the way, Hasler intensely disliked. Seventy years on, we now have access to sources, well, many of them here, which were not available to Hasler and his early chroniclers. We can now consult German records of the time, which tell the story from their point of view, and unveil the fate of each of Hasler's marines. French records, which reveal how the men were helped and betrayed, and newly opened files in Britain's national archives, which expose a shocking level of deceit, duplication, and interdepartmental rivalry on the part of those in London who sent Hasler's Royal Marines off on a mission that may never have been necessary, or at the very least, did not have to cost so many of their brave young lives. As a result, we now know that this story is not just about the courage and indomitable spirit of the Cockershell heroes. It's also about their very human flaws. And we know too that their leader, Blondie Hasler, was not the chromium-plated hero beloved of action comics and war films. He was, rather, a deeply complex and compassionate man who, despite doubting his own leadership qualities, was able to inspire very ordinary men to undertake this extraordinary, almost superhuman mission. This is not, therefore, ladies and gentlemen, a simple picture of boys' own daring do. There are blacks here, as well as whites. Not all is unvarnished glory, unflinching resistance, or impeccable judgment. But through it all, through the vicissitudes, the misjudgments and the pain, the setbacks, the tragedies, and the bad luck, one light cannot be extinguished. And that is the raw courage and unbreakable determination of the nine men who hazarded their lives with my inquisitive trained companion of all those years ago. It is to them, to the brave people of France who helped them, and to all those who have sought to follow their example in today's special boat service, that this book is dedicated. So, let us begin. Um, the year is 1942. Arguably, in my view, the lowest point of the war, the Heady days of solitary defiance and the Battle of Britain are over. Now this is the long slog, the war of attrition. And by the way, we are losing on all fronts. In North Africa, British tanks are being driven back against the armoured columns of Rommel heading for Cairo. And Cairo was packing up and ready to evacuate as fast as they could. Uh, in the Russian steppes, the same thing was happening with German tanks heading straight for the gates of Moscow across the vast expanse of the Pacific, with the single exception of the Battle of the Coral Sea. The Americans were doing the same thing after Pearl Harbor, and Britain had lost uh, Singapore. Churchill called it the biggest military defeat uh, in Britain's military history. And in the middle of the Atlantic, 
we were fighting a desperate war of survival against the U-boat menace to keep open the lifeline and prevent Britain from starving in the Battle of the Atlantic. These are bad and difficult days. We had on our side, on the British side, on the Allied side, only two assets. One was the unbreakable pugnacity and bellicosity of this man, Winston Spencer Churchill. He knew, of course, that we could not bite fight back conventionally. We were reeling after the defeats of the 1940 and 41. He knew that the next stage of the war, if he was to take it to the enemy at all, had to be the clandestine war. And he created two organizations. One was called the Combined Operations Headquarters in what is now the, the Health Department, um, just opposite Downing Street, and the other, the Special Operations Executive in Baker Street, some three or four miles away. <coughs> he gave them, by the way, two very similar tasks, and that may be some of the origin of the problem I'm about to describe to you in due course. The first was to combine operations who he instructed to institute a reign of terror around the coasts of occupied Europe. And the special operations executive he commanded to set Europe, famously to set Europe ablaze. Our second British asset was the only arm that could match the Germans like for like, the Royal Navy. But the Royal Navy had its handful on the, in the Battle of the Atlantic. Britain, by the way, at that stage was forced to follow the strategy, traditional strategy we had followed in the Napoleonic Wars and again in the First World War, a strategy of blockade. Deny the enemy the resources they need, but it wasn't working because Germany was simply taking the, the raw materials she needed from the captured territories in Europe, except for some highly specialised raw materials, which she could only get from the newly conquered Japanese possessions in the Far East, tungsten, molybdenum, rubber, opium. And so they set up, um, the Germans and the Japanese, what was called the Yanagi trade. Um, this, these specialised raw materials needed for the German war machine would be shipped to Germany, and in return Germany would send blueprints and technology of the new inventions she had created, proximity fuses, radar, etc. Initially this was operated on the Trans-Siberian Railway, but as soon as Hitler invaded Russia in Operation Barbarossa, that was closed. And that trade now had to be conducted by blockade runners, as they were called. Fast ships, merchant ships, this is one. Her name is the Tannenfels, and we'll meet her later. Manned by German crews, fitted out with light armaments. They were very fast and could outrun most British warships. Um, the other problem was that, whereas in the Napoleonic War and the First War, a blockade strategy was largely a North Atlantic affair. Now it was a global affair. Now we had to cover the oceans of the world, and the Navy just didn't have enough resources to do that. So they decided to follow a twin-prong strategy. Get, hit them at sea if you could, but hit them in port if you failed to catch them at sea. And there was only one port. The port that ran the whole of the blockade runner trade was the first port you would reach, since you couldn't get through the Suez Canal, if you were a German ship coming from the Far East, if you wanted to dock in German-occupied territory. And that was the great port of Bordeaux, 70 miles up the world's Europe's greatest estuary, the Gironde, on the Garonne River. Gironde, of course, is created from the junction between the Garonde and the, and the, um, and the Dordogne. Um, so now we had to tackle Bordeaux as well as try and catch them at sea. And so the government asked the armed services who could deal with Bordeaux. The RAF looked at it and said, sorry, we're not accurate enough in our bombing. We couldn't guarantee to hit the ships, but we could guarantee to kill a hell of a lot of French, innocent French civilians. Not long after Mirzel Kabir, the slaughter of 3,000 
um, uh, uh, French sailors in three minutes of British shelling, which destroyed the British fleet. This was a highly nervous thing, a highly <coughs> difficult thing to do, and was vetoed by the Foreign Office. The army said 75,000 troops would be required to do this, and it would be very hazardous, um, and we don't have the troops to be able to do it as we were rebuilding after Dieppe. The Navy looked at the 70 miles they'd have to travel up the Gironde estuary and said this was impossible for a conventional naval raid. So they turned to this man, uh, my inquisitive train companion of 1965, Major Blondie Hasler, Royal Marines. And he decided that he would do it in canoes. And here he is paddling uh, a Mark II cockle um, off Eastney Beach, and then behind him is Captain Stewart, his second in command. Hasler chose, chose 12 Marines. Actually, he chose 12 Marines in all to go with him. And here they are. 12 because added to him that was 13. There was one spare man. And here's the point, ladies and gentlemen, that they were perfectly ordinary guys. All the roughy toughies, all the commanders had left. The commanders had already been formed. Hasler said very clearly in his, recorded in his papers, I just had to use the very ordinary fellows I was given. And that, I think, is one of the great things about his leadership, that he was able to invest these 10 Marines with the skill and ability and courage to do this extraordinary job. Uh, a fate of leadership, in my view, of a very high order. Ordinary men, one of them um, is a, is, uh, was before the war a milkman from Stockport, whose best friend before the war was his horse. Uh, another was a co-merchant's clerk from Glasgow. You get the point. He started training them in June of 1942. Here they are training on Eastney Beach. And on the 30th of November, he put them on a train, took them north to the Clyde, and they went on board Her Majesty's submarine depot ship, HMS Forth, by the way, exactly the same ship which I conducted submarine-based canoe operations from in the Far East in the 1960s. And there they loaded onto Her Majesty's submarine tuna. Um, the 12 of them, plus the spare man, six canoes, in the four ends of tuna, those of you who know your way around the submarine, that's the four ends, very cramped, very uncomfortable. Um, she detorpedoed uh, de her forward torpedoes, and they slept on the floor. And he was commanded by this remarkable man, um, Lieutenant Dickie Rakes, DSO by this stage, um, one of Britain's very best uh, submarine commanders, and an extraordinary man in many ways. Um, and then they set sail. And over the next four days, five days, they uh, travelled on the surface at night and submerged during the day, down past Ushant into the Bay of Biscay, a very hazardous journey in its own right, uh, until Tuna was positioned a day before off the coast of, uh, of the Gironde, off the coast of, um, of the, the southern coast of the Bay of Biscay, French coast of the Bay of Biscay. At this stage, Hasler gave the Marines some paper and some pencils and said, if you want to write a last letter home, now's the time to do it. And so some of them did, and I found some of those letters from the relatives. You must forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, I find these quite difficult to read, but you, um, I think it's important that you hear them. And I want you to think, this is James Conway. He was the one who was the milkman from Stockport. And this is him writing to his mother and his sister. And just listen to these letters and think about this guy, 19 years old. Think about the syntax um, of the writing, but also think about the maturity of the emotions expressed. <clears throat> Dear Mother and Mary, I'm taking this opportunity to write a few lines, though I hope it won't be necessary. As you know, I volunteered for a certain job, which I trust you will learn about at a later period. 
being very secret, I cannot enclose in my letter the work that I do. However, I hope you won't think it hard of me. I know it looks foolish to you that I had to do this, but I've enjoyed it. <clears throat> and I know that what we are doing will, may help to end the mess we are in and make a more decent world. I would like to tell you how much I love you, but I can't compose a suitable phrase, but my heart will be with you always. Think not only of me, but the thousands already over there, many of them worse off than me, who have left wives and daughters behind. I've done my best, so what more can be expected? After all, we only live once, and so far I've always been on my own two feet, so please, for my sake, don't worry. I can't thank you enough for all you have done for me, and I will carry it with me wherever I go. So, trusting we will meet again, I'll say goodbye to you both. Thanking God for the two who have been so kind and given me courage, as you have done. God bless you and keep you both. I know this will hurt you both, but I think it's the best way. Jim. Bobby Hewitt was 21 the day before he wrote this letter to the girl he'd fallen in love with, the daughter of his landlady in Southsea, in Portsmouth. <clears throat> Her name is Heather. She's 16 years old, by the way. Dear Heather, I trust it won't be necessary to have this sent to you, but since I don't know the outcome of this little adventure, I thought I'd leave this note behind in the care of Norman, who will forward it to you should anything happen. I couldn't help but love you, Heather, although you were so young. I will always love you, as I know you do me, and that should get me through with this, though one never knows the turns of fate. One thing I ask of you, Heather, <coughs> is not to take it too hard. You have yet your life to live. Think of me as a good friend and keep your chin up. Some lucky fellow will find you who has more sense than I had and who can get you what you deserve. With your future in front of me, I feel confident that I shall pull through and get back to you someday. I pray that God will spare me and save you from this misery. So hoping for a speedy reunion I'll say cheerio, and God be with you and your mother from the bottom of my heart, at present in your care. God bless you all. Yours forever, Bob. P.S. Chin up, sweetheart. Bobby Hewitt was executed in front of a German firing squad a little less than three days after he wrote that letter. And by the way, um, his girlfriend Heather died of a broken heart afterwards. On the 7th of December... Tuna surfaced here, two miles off the little town of Montalivet-les-Bains, and uh, they unloaded. By the way, there was a just after dark. There was a German patrol working across here, and a German radar up here, Sulax on there, which picked Tuna up almost within minutes of her surfacing. Thought she was a returning fishing boat that had got lost. In 45 minutes, they unloaded the canoes. One got damaged on the way up, and the <coughs> canoe and the Marines had to be sent below. So now five canoes, ten men and they started to paddle to the mouth of the Gironde. What they had failed to notice, um, what the planners of command operations, and Hasler himself, a meticulous planner Hasler, had nevertheless failed to notice. Um, though they are there, they are indicated both in the charts and the Admiralty pilot at the time, was that this being a huge estuary here, there is enormous flow of water on the ebb and flood tides out here. And these cause very large tidal overfalls at here, here, and round the corner over here. I've paddled through canoes through tidal overfalls off St Albans Head and they're very, very unpleasant. 
It was to cost him dear. One of the canoes got separated. By the way, Bobby Ewart's canoe. Um, it paddled in, trying to catch up the others, got too close to the surf zone, wrecked on the beach, and frozen, the two men um, emerged from the water, stumbled through the sand dunes, blundered into a German position, were arrested the next day, interrogated by the Gestapo. The Germans had almost the entire plan by the following day. The only fact they didn't have was that Hasler was still on the water, and they were taken and shot under the Hitler commando order. And the second tidal overfalls here, um, one of the canoe capsized, and the canoes capsized. Hasler had given very firm instructions before the operation that if anybody got into difficulty, they were to be left. The operation came first, but he couldn't do it. His compassion overcame his professionalism. He hitched the two Marines onto the back of his canoes, towed them round the, the, the estuary in the middle of the night, threw a second, a third tidal overfalls, mercifully not so bad, brought them close to the edge here, about a mile out, and wished them good luck. They were by now um, suffering very severely from hypothermia. Uh, and said, I hope you'll make it to the beach. They didn't. Um, one of the frozen bodies was found on the Ile de Ray, um, 40 miles north, four days later. No one knows what happened to the other Marine, but I found a French woman who had seen, who worked at the camps, who had seen the frozen body of a young man in camouflage uniform lying on a trestle table in the German camp the following morning. Three canoes left now. He paddles down here. He has to pass through some guide, guard boats just over here at the edge of uh, at that point, um, and a third canoe gets separated. Um, McKinnon, by the way, his second in command. And they paddle over the next few nights, down through here, they continue with the operation, they paddle here, they spend the night here, and they're wrecked just about there. German, uh, French fishermen find them, <coughs> help them to escape, but subsequently they're caught by the Germans and shot. Hasler's now left with two-thirds of his force destroyed or separated from him. He's left with two canoes. He spends that day at a place called the Pointe aux Oiseaux, just there, where some fishermen find him but don't betray him. Over the course of the next four days, um, and despite the fact that the Germans knew every detail about the operation, except that he was still on the water, what they were doing, what the canoes were, what their targets were, got, got, got the limpet mines, they got a lot of information. Um, Hasler, through sheer determination and German complacency, the Germans just didn't believe it was possible to do this in canoes, and neither, by the way, did the local fishermen. Hasler made his way down, <coughs> lying up during the day and paddling during the night, until uh, on the fourth day of paddling, he arrives at this point here, which is the northern outpost of the, of the port of Bordeaux. Here's a larger picture of it. Um, this is the northern outpost of the port, and there are blockade runners lying along here. This is the Port de la Lune. It has its name because of its um, uh, semicircular shape. This is the city of Bordeaux, and the other blockade runners are lying alongside here. And Hasler is in the reeds just up there. Hasler, by the way, was a first-class draftsman. And here's his picture drawn that day of his lying-up position. Um, those are the reeds, of course, and these are the ships about 100 metres away, which they're going to attack on the following night. Um, they lie up during the day and they prepare their attack. Hasler decides to split his forces into two, um, sends one across the river, the other marines in the second canoe, to attack the ships opposite while he is going to make the distance down to the um, the um, the the uh, port of Bordeaux, um, and here is that's where he is. So this is what he's going to do, and this is what the other two marines are going to do. They're going to attack the ships along here and look for more ships down here. Here's the story of the beginning of the attack <clears throat> at 21:10, with the moon sinking slowly into the glow of lights from Bordeaux. Hasler's men shook hands and wished each other good luck. 
Then they quietly pushed aside the reeds and slipped out onto the black water. Catfish, Hasler's canoe, turning south towards the Quai des Chartrons, while crayfish headed southeast for the far bank of the Garonne. The attack had begun. With the tide behind them at only a tenth of a knot, they were now paddling in slack water under a moonless but uncomfortably starlit sky. The temperature, which had dropped sharply after sunset, would have been hovering around freezing. It took Hasler and Sparks 90 minutes to cover the two miles to the Quai des Chartrons. This is a picture of the Quai des Chartrons, taken in 1938. The canoe, the um, blockade runners were lying along here, and this is Hasler's journey in and his track out. <clears throat> With about 400 yards to go and his targets now fully visible and brightly illuminated under arc lights, Hasler hugged the shore where he could make use of the deep shadows cast by the dockside until he came to the mouth of the channel which gave access to the submarine basin on the west bank. It was this which Hasler now had to cross to reach his quarry. The area was illuminated in a bright pool of light which covered the entrance to the submarine basin and extended in the wide arc into the blackness of the river. Hasler again pulled catfish out, skirting the edge of the darkness until it was safe to close into the quay again. <clears throat> Hasler let catfish drift gently back into the shelter of the darkness under the edge of the quay, and they began to work their way towards the first ship. Finding it was a tanker and not one of the blockade runners, he slid quietly down its side to look at the vessel beyond. It is testimony to Hasler's single-minded determination that after so many days and hours of danger, hardship, and tension, he did not take the first target that they reached, but pressed on. The next ship was a large cargo vessel with its, whose riverside flank was fully exposed. Perfect. He allowed Catfish to slide below the big ship's overhanging stern, took off his gloves, and reached below his cockpit for the first of his limpet mines. He lowered them over the side, until he felt the small jolt which told him that the magnets had found the ship's steel plates. The first blow had been struck. Hasler attacked four ships alongside the Quai des Chartrons that night, pushed catfish out into the middle of the ebb tide, and went like the bats of hell, down with the tide towards Bly, 25 miles away. He'd been told that if he got to Bly, he could then walk 70 miles across German-occupied territory to the little town of Rufek, where the resistance would be warned of his arrival pick him up and put him into the resistance escape line. Um, on the way down, by the way, to Bly, quite by accident, they bumped into the other canoe, who had also successfully attacked four other ships on the Kedib, on the on Basin South, opposite the, the lying-up position. They separated, one landing south of Bly, one north, scuttled their canoes and found a hiding-up place for the day. At about 5.30 the following morning, Hasler's limpets started to go off. So Hasler is now uh, in a position where he and the other canoe, Marines Labour and Mills, here they are, uh, are now going to begin their long escape, 70 miles to make, to get to Rufek. Uh, they broke cover um, at dusk on the first day um, and marched through the night. Now, still in uniform, they didn't take any civilian clothes with them, which I think was a mistake. Um, and <coughs> Hasler managed to find the following day, as dawn broke shortly after dawn, um, a French farmer's wife who very reluctantly gave him some old clothes which meant that they could ditch their uniforms and now they could march by day. Labour and Mills didn't. They ended up about eight miles from their landing point and broke cover from there, still in uniform, 
at dusk on the following day, bumped almost straight away into a Frenchman called Joseph Gagnero. Uh, their luck had run out. He's the only person in this whole story who was a German collaborator. He betrayed them to the Germans. They were captured, interrogated by the Gestapo in Bordeaux, and subsequently shot. So now we're left with Hasler and Sparks, and this is their journey. They landed at Bly here, spent the first day lying up in a wood just by Bly, uh, and then that was their first night's journey. They picked up their uniform here, spent the next night, by the way, open in the woods, this is December, no cover, no sleeping bag, no, no waterproof, very, very little food, almost nothing to do this journey on. And then the following day, by successions, they walked, now dressed up in, in French peasants' uniform, in the, with the Germans in full pursuit. God knows how they got away with it. And they walked all the way through to here. Uh, third night they spent there. By the fourth night, um, they had arrived at the little town of Saint-Prix. They had had no food. They were bitterly, they were really suffering from exhaustion and exposure. Hasler knew that if they didn't find some food and shelter for that night, they were going to be in real trouble. As darkness was falling in Saint-Prix, they were coming down, Saint-Prix lies in a bowl, they're coming down the hill, and Hazel stopped at the first house. Um, it was owned by Mr. and Mrs. Madame and Monsieur Malichier, who were vignons, who, were made, who made wine. Madame Malichier came to the door. By the way, none of them could speak French. None of them had a word of French to do this journey with, except Hasler, who spoke French with a strong German accent. <laughs> um, so Hasler tries his routine out on Madame Malichet. The only thing they got on the way was a single chicken leg, which they shared between them, given to him by a French, uh, by a French woman. By the way, you know, remember France was in the middle of the war. France was, they went starving in country areas, but food wasn't easy to come by. So Madame Malichet was far too frightened to give them refuge, but she called one of her young farm labourers out and said, uh, take these two to a, um, a small isolated woodman's hut about a mile house about a mile outside Saint-Prix. That's the house as it looks today, and here's the story. Presently, they came to a clearing, in the middle of which sat a small, meagre-looking house with a comforting curl of smoke issuing from its chimney. It was fully dark now, bitterly cold and blowing hard. A dog barked furiously as they approached the back door, under which shone a chink of light. Their young guide <clears throat> knocked on the door. It was opened abruptly by a squat, fearsome-looking figure whose wild countenance was reinforced by an unkempt red moustache, a barrel chest, and eyes ferocious enough to be the envy of any self-respecting pirate. Behind him, through the half-open door, the visitors could see a circle of light coming from two candles, a room of earthen floors and tumble-down furniture, a blazing fire, and a homely-looking woman with an assortment of children of varying sizes, watching them closely. Their guide, stammering, explained the purpose of his visit and the identity of the night travellers. There was a moment's fierce examination of the three figures before the door was flung wide and they were ushered inside. <clears throat> it took a moment for Haslam and Sparks <clears throat> to adjust their eyes to the scene as the door was bolted shut behind them, closing out the night. Against one wall was a large cast-iron cooking stove enclosing a roaring fire and surmounted by a clatter of pots and cooking utensils. From its every crack and orifice, smoke belched, mixing with the pungent odour of cooking and garlic and filling the room with a haze that made their eyes smart and their mouths water at the same time. Close to the door was a large, rough-hewn table surrounded by benches, and on the walls 
hung an assortment of battered cupboards, and scattered around the room were a collection of ancient chests to match. Against the end wall was a giant family bed, which appeared to have mislaid its mattress elsewhere. The guard dog crouched, growling, spring-loaded, teeth bared, and ready to launch all its massive shagginess at the strangers in an instant, if only its master would give the signal. And behind it, in silent, inquisitive array, the women and children, eyes fixed on their fearsome host and the two night strangers. Who are you? By the way, I've invented no dialogue in this book. Um, this is the dialogue noted down by Hasler or Sparks. Who are you? Why do you come here? Who the devil told you to come to me? Began the man. Hasler ran through his routine. You are not English. It's not true. You cannot be. Where's the proof? Where are you from? Hasler and Sparks reached under their damp, malodorous clothes to pull out their identity discs, but these, were, these two were dismissed with anger. That means nothing. What have you been doing? Where did you escape from? That's a secret, Hasler replied, but it was a commando raid. The word commando seemed to have some subterranean effect on the volcano of fury and interrogation, but not enough to stop the eruption. Show me some English things, he demanded. They pulled out their escape boxes and showed him their V for victory matches, their British soap, their British toilet paper, their escape compasses. But none of it was enough. The torrent of disbelief continued unabated. Suddenly, the little bundle of muscular fury swung on Sparks and fired a salvo of quick questions. Sparks, understanding nothing, replied, pointing to himself and flashing his most disarming gap-toothed cockney grin, he said, English. Savvy? <laughs> At about the same time, the two escapers heard the familiar voice of the BBC coming from behind the curtain in the corner of the room. It was the news from London, and the voice was saying something about a great battle, won in North Africa. The two men leaned forward, listening intently, and congratulated each other on the good news of the Eighth Army's desert progress. Suddenly convinced, their host's interrogation was over, and his welcome became as fierce as his hostility had been before. Je suis Clodomir Pasquereau, communist, moi, raising his fist at this point. Drop me a gun. I will kill Nazis for you. I'll kill them behind. The Russians will kill them in front. Soon the war will be over. Have you eaten? Tell me, have you eaten? If he's asking if we have eaten, tell him I could eat a horse, said Sparks. My friend says you could eat a horse. Clodomir fired off some rapid orders to his wife, who trotted dutifully over to the stove, while the children crowded round the two strangers, touching the maps and the compasses and the matches, and saying wonderingly to each other, Anglais, Anglais, while Sparks ruffled their hair and started to play with them. You are going back to England? We hope so. Good. Tell the RAF, the RAF, to drop me some weapons. Here. Dashing around the room, grabbing at imaginary items falling from the sky, with the children in gay pursuit, he caught an imaginary pistol and fired at an imaginary German. Puff! The German fell dead. Then a rifle, which he put to his shoulders. Bang! Bang! Another Nazi bit the dusk. Next, a Tommy gun. Crouching now, the weapon tucked into his hip to control the recoil. Rat-tat-tat-tat-tat! A whole platoon of virtual Bosch collapsed like falling cards. We'll fight! We'll kill plenty of Germans. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. In an instant, make-believe turned into the possibility of terrifying reality. 
From somewhere, Pascaro, with a single swift movement, pulled out a real weapon, a 7.62 rifle, while at the same time unbolting the door and shouting, Come in! The door swung open, letting in a cold blast of the stormy night, and with it, the figure of a young man. You'll have to buy the book. <laughs> Suffice it to say, ladies and gentlemen, that they didn't get captured. It was they got away with it, and the following day, they continued their journey um, and made it, God knows how, to Rufek. Uh, that's Rufek on the demarcation line. By the way, the whole of France had now been invaded by the Germans, so the demarcation line didn't mean very much. What started off as a 70-mile journey through German-occupied territory ended up, by the time they'd been launched, over 700 miles through occupied territory. There, the resistance weren't waiting for them. One of the characters in the story I haven't got time to tell you about is the remarkable Mary Lindell, Marie Claire. She ran the Marie Claire escape line. <laughs> Formidable Englishwoman, unbelievable in many ways. Um, God, she must have been terrifying. Sort of, sort of cross between, between you know, an aristocratic nanny and Mrs. Thatcher. Um, anyway, um, they bump into the resistance mostly by accident. They go into a restaurant called the Top Blanche, the, 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 the chef's white hat, it's still there in Ruffec, and they happen to choose the right restaurant. And they happen to get picked up by the resistance, who, with the aid of Marie Claire, uh, smuggle them from Ruffec to Lyon, Lyon to Marseille, Marseille to Perpignan, over the Pyrenees. I followed their route, Barcelona, Madrid, Gibraltar, home. Four months later, they arrived back in Britain. Um, and it's a few days after Hasler had made the rendezvous with, um, with Rakes uh, as he left them on the bridge of Tuna on the night of the 7th of December to have dinner together. In fact, they were going to do it at the Savoy, but they chose Ketner's in, the, in Soho because they reckoned the food was better. They will still do for all I know. So much, so far, so extraordinary. What is, most, what is more extraordinary? And what I discovered here is that, in fact, the story didn't begin in 1942. In fact, the story began in 1940. The story began um, with uh, six weeks after Charles de Gaulle left Merignac Airport in Bordeaux uh, with two clean shirts, 150,000 French gold francs and the honour of France, and flew to Britain. Um, six weeks later, this man, who I think is really one of the heroes of the story, his name is Jean, is, his name is Jean de Bouet, um, he was running a restaurant on the front of Bordeaux, the Café des Commerces. It's an Irish pub now. Um, and, um, and he had started his own intelligence réseau, his own intelligence network, which was the first information that reached SOE in Baker Street about the blockade runners uh, alongside the quay in Bordeaux. And he passed his information by courier, his 18-year-old daughter Suzanne de Bouet, who we'll meet again in a minute, um, through Tarb and a restaurant run by a man called Gaston Esch, and a regular two-week courier service over the Pyrenees um, and to Barcelona, where the information was handed over to the British consul, who was a member of MI6, and taken back to Britain. And it was that was the way we got to know about the blockade runners and what was happening. Over the course of 1940-41 and into 1942, they provided SOE with all the information which was subsequently used uh, to set this as a national strategic target. And there is one of the rubs, because at this stage, mid-1942, there was serious trouble for both combined operations and SOE. Neither of them were, frankly, delivering very much to the main strategic target of the war, but they were using a lot of resources, and both of them were under some threat, should they exist, should they continue to exist. SOE decided, as soon as this had been established as a national target, that they would mount an attack on the blockade runners and told no one. Um, they, their instrument for doing this, the Blondie Hasler of their plan, 
was this man. His name is Claude Marie Boucherville de Bessac. Um, and I, I can't tell you the excitement when I pulled his file and opened it up and there was all the information. He was parachuted in on the 31st of July to what is now uh, a field very close to Nîmes International Airport um, with a radio operator. He broke his leg, unfortunately, in the parachute drop. He made his way through Tarbes, through Gaston Esch's restaurant, into Bordeaux, linked up with Jean de Bouet and set up his headquarters for his operation, the primary purpose of which was to attack the blockade runners in this restaurant. Now, you'll have seen that photograph before. You remember that Hasler came in here. The Baysac's headquarters <coughs> were in the Café des Chartrons, which is there, a hundred metres away from the front. And indeed, um, they had, I'll explain how, what happened in a minute, but he mounted the operation. They were actually on the quayside, the, it's called the scientist reso, they were on the quayside conducting their final reconnaissance to do the operation the following night when Blondie Hasler's limpets went off. <laughs> they were quite surprised. <laughs> and the Basak was a very rude letter back. Um, the Basak's team consisted of six, actually seven British officers, a man called Robert Leroy, but I haven't got time to tell you about that. Um, and here are three of them. Jacqueline Gauthier. Uh, she's called Yvonne Rudela. Um, her code name was Jacqueline Gauthier. SOE found her um, in the uh, Ibri Court Hotel just near Victoria Station where she was the uh, receptionist. Um, she was de Basak's early courier. Um, she was uh, subsequently betrayed and died of typhus in Belson Camp a week before it was liberated by the Americans. Lise de Basak, she is Claude de Basak's sister. She escaped from France with him when he escaped in 1941. Um, she was a remarkable woman, lived to 93, one of the first women parachuted into France and ran a sort of parallel organisation that assisted de Basak. Um, she was a great friend of the Queen Mother's um, after the war. This woman here is Mary Catherine Herbert. Um, her uh, SOE code name was Claudine. Um, she was a remarkable girl. She could speak three languages. Um, perfect, absolutely perfect French. And she was the Basak's courier. Um, she was landed in a fishing vessel on the south coast of France, cycled most of the way uh, to, to Bordeaux. Um, and uh, at the time when the commando raid was going on, when Blondie Hasler was visiting the quay in Bordeaux, she, was, she had either just begun or was just about to begin an affair with Claude de Bessac. She had his baby um, in a maternity home in occupied Bordeaux almost exactly a year later. She called her baby Claudine after her own SOE code, code name um, and I found Claudine. Um, she's living today in, um, in America, in Los Angeles, married to an American pilot. Um, and the other day when I was signing books at the Special Forces Club, man came up to me and said, I said, what name do you want? And he said, I'd like you to put Jean de Bessac here. In fact, he is the, grand, he's the um, grandson of Claude de Bessac and Claudine's grandson. Um, he, he calls himself Hamish Betridge now, but his real name is Jean de Bessac. She, um, after the war, de Bessac returned, married her, it was a mariage de guerre, and then divorced her and remarried, and she hung herself from an apple tree in her garden in Paris in 1980. Also parachuted in was this man. His name is Roger Lord. Um, he was the radio operator. He operated his radio from a small house above on the heights of Senon, just above Bordeaux, looking down on the blockade runners. Um, subsequently, the scientist Rezo was betrayed by a man called André Grandclément. But, Alice, but um, uh, Roger Lord managed to escape. He managed to not get caught. And then he was put in charge of his own Rezo, his own network, under the name Aristide 
and was one of the most famous of all the SOE agents who basically did a huge amount to liberate, to prepare the way for the liberation of Bordeaux. De Gaulle sacked him, um, declared him persona non grata because he had far too much influence in the area uh, when de Gaulle returned. He did that kind of thing. And then there's this extraordinary man. Um, I don't know if you can see him very clearly there. He looks like a provincial bank manager. In fact, he looks, he looks um, rather nicer than mine, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and uh, he, in fact, was a dental mechanic who SOE found, dental mechanic in Paris. Charles Victor Hayes is his name. This is his second trip into France. He'd already been sent in on a, on a sabotage um, mission earlier on, escaped over the Pyrenees, got back and volunteered to go back in. He was parachuted in. And uh, a week before, just as Blondie Hasler was paddling up the Gironde, um, a, a Lancaster circled over a dropping zone about 16 miles outside Bordeaux, found the site, uh, and dropped in the explosive that he was going to prepare uh, to attack the blockade runners. At the time when the operation was going on, he had fallen in love with this girl. There's always love affairs. Isn't there? Mm -hmm. Her name is Suzanne de Bouet. She was the 18-year-old daughter of Jean de Bouet and his courier at the start from 1940. Um, they were betrayed. The family was caught in their house with uh, Charles Victor Hayes, um, surrounded by uh, the Germans. By the way, I found a good Gestapo officer in this story, which is quite remarkable. Um, and uh, they had a six-hour gun battle. And when they ran out, they were all uh, ran out of ammunition. They were all captured. Um, she saw Charles Victor Hayes. Jean de Bouet was sent off to Dora, where, where he was shot again, uh, wounded, were trying to escape, lost a leg. Uh, which was amputated without anaesthetic under concentration camp conditions, survived and came back quite extraordinary. Um, he was, Charles Victor Hayes was condemned to death, condemned to be executed. She was sent to Ravensbrück and she survived. She came back after the war. Uh, looking for her lover, Charles Victor Hayes, codename Eve. She never found him, but I know what happened to him because I found a record of a German prisoner who had shared a cell with him in the days when he was being tortured and taken out and shot. Um, she spent the rest of her life looking for him, but managed to marry a Monsieur Leglise and named her son Eve after the codename of her lover. And I found her. She was in Cannes. I spent a long time looking through the French telephone books until I found her and her son Eve living in Cannes. So I flew down to see her. She was 88. She'd lost some of the stability of her mind. And as I walked in, she took one look at me and said, No. Vous n'avez pas le visage d'un Anglais. Vous êtes Allemand. Vous êtes venu ici pour m'interroger. No, you don't have the face of an Englishman. You're a German. You've come here to interrogate me. And would say nothing. Fortunately, my daughter was with me, who speaks very good French. And um, I left the room, and she gave her story to her. She died about a year later. She's lost somewhere in the hinterland behind Cannes. No one's ever found her body. As indeed did um, one of the other women, who I found a late woman called uh, Anne-Marie Ferré, who was 18 years old at the time, herding her cows back home, found one of the means sitting on a pile of logs, um, and um, he got up and said, sauvez-moi, sauvez-moi. He's the only, uh, only words he could say. Instinctively, she just took him in, took him home, and looked after him and sent him on his way. He was subsequently captured and shot. You may think that's a scandalous story, and so do I. Um, it is an extraordinary story. What makes it extraordinary and scandalous is, is the fact that, you know, not only if they'd have combined could they have done a much better job, the tragedy is that Hasler's, the, the blockade runners, um, simply, they were empty. Um, Hasler wasn't to know that, but Claude de Bessac certainly did. Um, they sank a few feet onto the ground. They were refloated, most of them, the next tide, and some of them were operational about two days later.
So despite the fact that the operation did a huge amount to cause the Germans to deploy more troops to protect their ports, and there was a huge uplift in um, French resistance operation in the area afterwards, it was, for all intents and purposes, a military failure. If they'd worked together, as you would do nowadays with SBS operations, they would have achieved so much more. Even more scandalously, when I started to trace their escape routes out and mark in um, de Besac's safe houses, I discovered that on two occasions, um, two of the Marines who were subsequently to get shot because they, uh, on their way home, passed within a mile of de Besac's safe houses. And so I end the book like this. Nevertheless, no amount of Whitehall infighting, no petty interdepartmental jealousies, no squabbling rivalry, no intrigue, no deception, no stupidity can detract from the extraordinary bravery, endurance and determination of the young men who followed an outstanding leader, Blondie Hasler, into the mouth of danger on that bitterly cold night of the 7th of December 1942. Or from the acts of generosity and courage of the ordinary French men and women who in helping them struck a blow not just for the liberty of their country but for the cause of humanity itself. In an age of easy living, when we are rarely faced with the need to choose between ourselves and something greater, they should be an inspiration to us all. Thank you all very much indeed. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.